0: Hi, Martin, Thanks for coming on and talking with me today.
1: Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you today.
0: So you are a Buddhist nun for 10 years in Korea. Uh, now you're a meditation teacher and author, which is how I became familiar with your work. How did you get started with Buddhism? And what made you want to become a nun?
1: So this is a little bit of a long story. Because uh, when I was 18, in a way, I left home. And when I was 18, I was very, in a way, politically engaged, social action and thing of that nature, uh, because I wanted to change the world, make it a better place for everybody. But then I, I, by accident, a little bit, I at a friend's house, I read a book of the Buddha, and in it he said, before you try to change others. Possibly you need to change yourself. And I thought, this is such a good point. Because, you know, uh, I could tell myself, don't be egoist, don't be jealous, don't be this, don't be that. It had no effect. And I thought, it's true. How can I say to others, don't do this, don't do that. Do this, do that. If I am not able to do that. So from there on, I moved from the political thing interest to more like Buddhist meditation and then I was kind of at that time in 75 you did not have much around you a little bit in England not very much in France and then I decided to travel like uh, I kind of earned some money and then I traveled when I was like uh, 21 22 and then as I traveled kind of you know how it is you try to go there and it doesn't work out. And then you go there and then you, I made a mistake in the visa and then, and so on and so forth. And then I ended up in uh, Thailand and I met some Korean monks and they said there was lots of meditation in Korea, which at the time nobody knew about, or very few people. And so I thought, oh, I'll go to Korea for a month and then, I'll go to Japan to earn money because I did not have much money left. Then I arrive in Korea. And then I kind of like, I have this interesting encounter with a lay person because there was a big ceremony at the temple. And she says to me, I am age 22. She says, you know, are you married? Are you studying? Are you working? Do you have children? And I say no to all of this. I said, oh, if I was you, I would become a nun. (laughs) And then I thought, maybe this is a good idea. Because being free from 18 to 22, I could see I kept making the same mistake and causing the same suffering. And I thought, oh, maybe if I become a nun, if I meditate, then something can change. And I'm not going to make the same mistake causing the same suffering. And that's why I decided to become a nun. Very kindly, they accepted me. And it was fantastic because there you can meditate two, two times, three months at a time, 10 hours a day. Wow. And so I was very lucky that I was able to do this intensive practice. And very quickly, within six months, I could see that meditation work meditation work in terms of making myself becoming clearer about what was going on in my mind, but also seeing more compassion arising. What I would say true compassion, not kind of like abstract compassion, but compassion in terms of seeing the other person as equal to you and responding to their suffering. So seeing that, I thought, oh, this is working. And then I stayed 10 years.
0: So what are you doing on a daily basis as a nun? You mentioned 10 hours of meditation a day. What does what your typical day look like?
1: Well, at the time, you would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Then you would kind of wash quickly your face. And then you would start meditation for 50 minutes, five zero, And then you would walk for 10 minutes and end of the time, 50 minutes. Then you would have breakfast around six o'clock, then you would have a little job, and then you would again do three times, 15 minutes, 10, 50 10, then you would have lunch, then again you would eat four times, then a little work again, and then you would have a light dinner, and then again one or two more time, and then you would generally go to bed at night, and then wake up again at four, at three, and then again... That's what you need for for uh, uh, three months at a time, uh, twice a year, in the winter, in the summer, and then in the spring and autumn, then you would just sit four hours a day before breakfast and in the evening and in the daytime, I might learn Korean, learn Chinese, study texts, and things like, like that. And then within the three months of meditation, every two weeks, You would have what's called the bath day, and then you would also have the lecture day. And then again, you would do another bunch.
0: So what was the goal of, of that, that level of meditation? What are you aiming for? Is there an aim? What's the the outcome that, that you're trying to induce?
1: I mean, in terms of the Korean, the aim is to awaken. That's, that's the aim. In terms of me, at the time, uh, my idea was to develop more wisdom and compassion. Yeah. And then if I awaken, why not? But I thought compassion and wisdom might be more attainable.
0: More actionable, like something that that you can, because the the idea of awakening seems it's very abstract and like kind of hard to um, get a hold of. uh... Yeah,
1: because I think it depends what you mean, because I think often people think of awakening as an experience. Mm -hmm. when actually awakening is more, possibly can be an experience, but I think it's more the dissolution of, in a way, the obstacle to your wisdom and compassion. So we have a lot of stickiness. We often kind of stuck in our habits. And so in a way, the awakening is really about, I mean, the Buddha said awakening is an absence of greed, hatred, and ignorance. But often we see awakening as an experience. Yeah. And of course, time to time, you might have experience in terms of suddenly you don't grasp anymore and then you can feel very quiet and clear. But then we have so much patterning, so much reactivity that uh, it's not like forever. (laughs) So you have to work at it.
0: So a constant practice of like maintaining that state, because it's so easy to get wrapped up in momentum where you start grasping again.
1: Well, it's, it's a little yes and no, because what was interesting in the temple, I was they had this idea of sudden awakening, followed yep. by gradual practice, then another sudden awakening followed by gradual practice, which made a lot of sense to me. And if you think of awakening more as an opening, as a de grasping, but then you still have the patterning, like kind of the automatic habits. So then, you know, it kind of it gets a dissolve a little bit. But in certain circumstances, it comes back. So then you work more so that it's less likely to come back and maybe not so intensely, not for so long.
0: So it's actually gradual awakenings over time that you're maintaining through practices rather than one one awakening where you get the whole thing and then you're trying to maintain that. And instead, like bit by bit, you're opening up more and more over time.
1: You, you could say it like that. Personally, I would see it in terms of kind of the two dimension. That in a way you had the depth dimension and that's what often people talk about awakening, more like a depth dimension. But I think you also have the width dimension. And so thinking more about how can I be an awakened person in daily life? How can I manifest wisdom and compassion in daily life? So personally, I think on retreats, at one level, it's relatively easy to experience the depth, the quietness, the clarity, but it's generally less easy in daily life. And so, in a way, it's more like, how do you make it organic? How does it, in a way, infuse how you are with yourself and with others? Mm
0: -hmm. So is is the idea that with these awakenings, you'll kind of naturally get the wisdom and compassion that it's, it's more that they have room to come through now that they're not being blocked anymore, rather than something that you have to go and attain, necessarily? It's more just about removing the things that are getting in the way?
1: That's the way I would see it. That's the way I would see it. I would see meditation in a way as kind of dissolving the power of the habits of the reactivity. Mm. So that over time, it's less and less. Yes, I would see it that way.
0: Interesting. So how how did you go from none to you? you, uh, After 10 years, you leave that and uh, you become a meditation teacher. You translate the texts of, I believe the master that you trained under, and then you start writing your own books. What was that transition like for you?
1: So again, I was a nun for 10 years, and a -hmm. a year, nine after eight years, my teacher died. And then I stayed another year to help out with the monastery, then I left. Then I stopped being a nun, and then I went back uh, to live in England. And then I married my husband, Stephen Batchelor. And then we went to live in a community, in a meditation community. And so to me, what was interesting when I came back was that by then I was 33. And actually, I realized that for 10 years, I had not addressed relationship, romantic relationship of, different type of relationship and so it was like strange I went back I was 33 but I felt that emotionally I was more like 20 and it was a little kind of you know what's going on with all these emotions and then after a few months I saw I mean that's why I'm practicing I'm practicing in order to creatively engage with emotions with these different things, this reactivity, which is happening. So then I kind of like then, okay, let's use this as practice. And then at the same time, this was like a community where we put on event and thing of that nature. At the same time I had to work because I had no money. So I became a house cleaner at the place. And then after a year or two, there was a Gaia House Meditation Center not far. And they kind of, since we had both, my husband and I practiced for some time, they said, oh, do you want to teach retreat? And so we started to teach retreats at Gaia House. So that's how, you know I became a teacher because I was invited to teach. And then in terms of books, again, when we were in Korea, we'd already worked on the book of my the translation of the talk of my teacher, and Stephen had edit, edited that book, which is called The Way of Korean Zen. Then, when I came back to live in England, then somebody said, "Oh, uh, I kind of did a lot of interface uh, meeting and thing like that in England." And then somebody said, "Oh, we want to do a series on religion and ecology," and then the asked me to kind of help with Buddhism and ecology. So then I did that book. Then I thought, oh, maybe it would be good to have a book on meditation, like basic meditation. So I did meditation for life. Then there was this kind of, I was also interested in women in Buddhism. So I did some research, I travel, I got a grant. Then I had this book on women on the Buddhist path. And then there was this text in Korea, which we used to use a lot called the Bodhisattva Precept, which I thought was very interesting in terms of kind of like, again, practice in daily life. So I translated that. And then I kind of like, as I started to teach more, I thought, hmm, people can meditate on retreat, but it's kind of difficult for them in daily life, and that's why I wrote the book you mentioned, uh, "Let Let Go: A Buddhist Guide to Breaking Free of Habits." Because I thought, "Oh, mm, I could write something about that." So that's how I kind of became a writer.
0: So, "Let Go" was born out of you trying to Correct. figure out a way to implement meditation and what your the. The clarity that you're gaining from retreats and be able to infuse that into daily life and help it clear things out in the noise that is often going on.
1: Yeah, very much because what I could see uh, in terms of the people I saw, like I was teaching retreats at Gaia House, and I could really see that on retreat, people could really become quiet and clear and it really benefited them for sure. But when I saw them the year after, they said, Oh, the retreat was so good, but it's difficult in daily life. So then I thought, But what's the obstacle to that? Mm-hmm. And then as I reflected on myself and on others, I realized it was actually the habits mental habit, physical habit, um, emotional habit, relationship habits. And so I became interested in that, kind of, you know, with how the habit happen and how they're so repetitive. And then I started to realize that actually, when we meditate, what we're doing is moving from repetition to creative functioning. This is something I kind of realized over time, that one of the effects of meditation was kind of this anchoring. You know, we told watch the breath, be aware of the body, or whatever it is, different type of meditation. And generally, you're told, come back, come back, because you can't stay all the time on it. Our attention is kind of moving. But why is our attention moving? Is because there is this automatic patterns. And one of the things we can notice if we sit in meditation is to see that Generally, we don't have an original thought, and we come back to the same thing, and we come back to planning and to ruminating, or whatever it is, we have kind of different kind of like automatic thought. But I thought the idea of the meditation is not to stop thinking, but it's more to bring it back to the creative functioning, of reflecting, imagining, etc., etc. And so then I saw, oh yeah, that's in a way what we're doing. So that's something which became interested in terms of talking with people about, and also to see even emotions, you know, that you're angry, sad, anxious. I mean, this is creative functioning of the organism, but they, they become habits. And it's kind of really kind of a little harm uh, to, we so taken by them. So I saw the, in a way, the practice of meditation moving from the repetition to the creative functioning.
0: So the the core thing that we're getting in touch with with meditation regarding our habits is we're we're able to kind of step back a little bit and not be so overwhelmed by the immediate patterns that have developed, both in in in, in thought and emotion and behaviors. You can choose more Uh, deliberately or consciously or intentionally in the moment rather than just kind of being yanked around by the way that you've always done it or by the things that have just developed over time
1: well yes indeed however what you realize is it depends on circumstances so in a way Mm -hmm. i think the first thing meditation helps us to do is to see oh i have this repetition i have this story i have this But then you realize you don't have it all the time. That's what is so interesting in terms of the meditation to become more aware of change. That time to time you really go into planning, ruminating, but time to time you don't. That time to time you get angry, you get anxious, time to time you don't. So the a way is to, with the meditation, with the awareness, the mindfulness to see, oh, that is what's going on. I think this is the first thing to see, oh, that's what's going on. And the second thing is to see it is not always there. So then you work on two levels. By coming back again and again to the breath, for example, you are actually not feeding the habit, you dissolve its power and you bring it back to the creative functioning. But also you come back to what is going on now? Because when we go into the thought, we go into abstraction in the past, in the future, somewhere else. And here we come back to, yeah, there is this thought, there is this situation, but I am not just one thought. I am more than that. And also it is according to conditions. Sometimes I am calm. I am clear and sometimes I am anxious and things are really agitated. So I think the meditation actually gives clarity, also diminishes the power of the repetition. And yes, over time, because we know we're not always like this, give us a possibility, oh yes, I could think differently. I could feel differently, I could act differently. And then in a way giving us the courage to see it and the courage to do it. But I don't think it can work in all circumstances. And then we can have like, you know, when it's light, then you can wait for it to pass. When it's a little repetitive, you can, oh, when is this happening? Can I do something about the condition? And when it's strong, something which is really shocking to the system, then I think in a way you have the intensity. You need to have the patience with the intensity. And at the same time, the meditation can help you to come back for a few seconds to some calmness and clarity. Then you take it again. Then you come back. And that way, you're not going to amplify it. And then if it's not amplified, it's easier to make a different choice.
0: How do you figure out or discern between feelings that you're having and figure out which one needs more hands on work versus which ones are better to just kind of let flow by?
1: Well, it, it, it's very much for me, it's very much first to see, oh, I am feeling differently. You see, you have a way you feel about yourself. You could say kind of uh, regular. The way you feel about yourself, regular. You feel not agitated. You're relatively okay, let's say. And then suddenly something shifts. Suddenly you feel something different. So I think this is an important point, the fact that we notice, ah, I feel something different. And then the question is, where do I feel it? I mean, generally, we might feel it in the body, in the stomach, in the belly or in the chest. Or is it more that suddenly you see yourself getting anxious, for example, or getting agitated? Then if it's something in the body, the first thing is, in a way, you can ask, how long is this going to last? And you could wait 10 minutes and see, oh, is it still there? And sometimes it's gone. If you don't do anything, it's just gone. But then, if after 10 minutes it's still there, then maybe, oh, what is going on? What has happened? Because our tendency is often to think, I always feel like this. But more, am I tired? Has somebody said something? Kind of. So, in a way, exploring it a little. Or is it kind of so totalizing that I cannot see anything else? And then kind of realizing something shocking has happened. And then it will take some time. But how can I not amplify it? So I think it depends of what is going on in a way.
0: So that brings us to the anchor, which I, I thought your anchor was interesting. The question, what is this? Usually with meditation, what what I often hear of is the breath, that's usually how I'll practice or like, I, I know some other practices will use something like a mantra that may be just more of like one syllable sound. What is it about the phrase? What is this that's beneficial? Do you find that, that you prefer that? Or does it depend on the on what you're trying to get out of the meditation?
1: I think It depends on uh, what you're working with, but it also depends on what works for you. For some people, just coming back to the breath is very calming. For some people, coming back to the breath is actually not very helpful, and it could be kind of slightly anxiety-making, depending. Some people coming back to the body, to the feet, to the hands, can really be, again, calming. And for somebody, if there is too much pain in the body, that might not be calming. So some people listening to sound can actually be very helpful, or kind of uh, going toward friendliness, going to one of the quality, friendliness, compassion, joy, or calm. That can be helpful. And then, personally, why I like the what is 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 because it's kind of like, it's a little also like asking, is this true? Like you're sitting here and you're making this whole film about something. And it seems to be kind of so true and so terrible or whatever. And you kind of stop and ask yourself, but is this really true? I am always stupid, or I'm like this, or they like that. Is this true? Is it true all the time? So in a way, the what is is, is an anchor, which also have some questioning within it. And the questioning you know, is kind of like a little bit, because what is is, we're not doing it to have an answer. We're actually asking what is this to develop a sensation of questioning. So we become less rigid because we can be easily kind of fixed and rigid. And what is this is like opening to the whole thing. So at that level, I think what is this can be a good practice if it suits you. But it doesn't suit everybody because some people, uh they use words and it makes them having more thought. So that would not be good for them. Though they could think more about it as becoming a question mark. So they could use visualization. Or some other people, if they ask what is is, it can make them a little anxious because it brings uncertainty. So another anchor could be good, but if what is is suits the person It can have an effect of like, wait a minute, I'm a little stuck here. What is this? And then suddenly the whole thing can open up.
0: Put an emphasis on not labeling sensations, but more focusing on experiencing them directly as they are. It seems like such an easy instinct to kind of like put a label on it and say, you know, this is good. This is bad. It's positive, negative. Um, I like this. I don't like that. What, why is it important to start from a space of just like feeling it as it is without immediately jumping to putting it in a box or a category?
1: So actually I have become, uh, I don't talk so much about it in, uh, let go, but from the being interested in the habit. Now I'm becoming very interested in what's called feeling tones,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and actually feeling tone is upon contact with whatever. When you see something, hear something, etc., it's like mm, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Because I realize that actually the habits came more from that. The kind of how we are reactive. It's what the, it is called the underlying tendency toward pleasant sensation or unpleasant sensation or neither. And so in a way, I think there is two different aspects here. One aspect is with the meditation, what is it I am feeling in terms of the sensation? How does it feel? Like suddenly I was fine and suddenly I am not fine. And so often we go quickly to the meaning of it. It's sadness, it's anger, it's this, it's that, or I always feel like this or whatever it is. So at one level it's useful to just, oh, I feel different. And in a way to feel it in terms of, I feel a little agitated or I feel heavy, You know, uh, some time ago, I would kind of feel really heavy and I would just, oh, I feel heavy, you know, and sometimes it was due to tiredness, sometimes it was due to worry about my mother, sometimes it was different things. But in a way, first knowing it and then knowing, oh, I feel heavy, so then maybe I need to take rest especially if I am tired. So in a way, it's kind of like, oh, I feel different. How do I recognize a pattern here? And what is the best way to take care of that? So that would be the first one. But another one which is interesting is through the mindfulness of the feeling tone. To be aware, oh, this is pleasant now. And actually to become more aware (laughs) of the pleasant aspect of one's life from zero to plus plus ten, one could say. And then also when you feel something unpleasant, oh, this is unpleasant, but again to notice this is maybe minus one, minus five, minus 10. And again, you would do different things with the difference. And then also neither. What do we do with that? So I, again, I'm not saying to label it like, oh, this is pleasant plus two and a half, but more, can we become more aware of those aspects of our experience upon contact so that we become aware of our underlying tendency? Because if something is pleasant, for example, we want to repeat it, we want to continue. And then what is interesting is like when something unpleasant pleasant stops. Actually, just because a pleasantness stops, it can become unpleasant. Though, it actually could be neither. And so in a way to recognize that sometimes you feel something unpleasant, not because anybody is unpleasant, but because something which was so much fun has stopped. And it's interesting because that's often uh, people who have kind of a who are singers or have groups, and they play to a big audience. And so they have this huge kind of like love, I mean, it's a love fest between them and the public. And then they all describe how they have this amazing experience. And then generally they go back to their hotel room and they're on their own and they feel terrible. I mean, at one level, they're okay. They're in good health, I mean, they're adulated and everything. But what's difficult is moving from this high to neither, in a way, or to something less intense. So this is kind of, again, interesting to, I mean, you can label. Some people find it useful. Personally, I find it more interesting to go inside the experience. How does it feel? And also, how does it change? How does it echo?
0: So having that kind of state of mind and awareness helps you be a little bit more stable in dealing with the contrast between various wildly different experiences that you're having.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because in a way, uh, as it suggested, we have six senses with the mind, and so we have six contact, and at any given time, you could have a pleasant feeling hearing something, unpleasant feeling tasting something, neither the rest. And what sometimes they're kind of all in balance, and then sometimes everything goes up, and one thing makes everything pleasant, or one thing makes everything unpleasant. And so in a way to bring the, the awareness and mindfulness to that and to think, wait a minute, what's happening here?
0: Could you explain the concept of grasping both in positive grasping and negative grasping and how that influences our habitual thoughts, emotions, behaviors?
1: Yeah. So this is something which I think is really important to see that again, as a organism, as a human being, we cannot not grasp. I think this is very important. We're not going for zero grasping. But as an organism, human being who wants to survive, I mean, this is kind of like just a biological imperative, you could say. we born, this organism generally wants to survive. Then in a way, we're going to, to grasp to a certain degree. So that we eat, we breathe, we live, and so on and so forth. So you have like what I would call the basic 50% grasping. But then often what we have is what I would call the 95% grasping, where first you have the grasping itself. And so it's kind of a little bit kind of me, 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 kind of what I would call self centeredness. And so we cannot try to diminish this a little so that there is space for others. And we realize that if we less self-centered, actually we feel better about ourselves, actually because we feel more connection. But also we grasp upon contact. And so, uh, so we grasp at things we want, we reject things we don't want, so it's kind of grasping in reverse. And the problem is not so much with the grasping, but what happens when we grasp. Because in a way, when we grasp, we're going to limit ourselves to what we grasp at. And by limiting ourselves to what we grasp at, we're going to amplify. And so this is happening in two ways. Like One thing we can notice is how suddenly we caught in just one thing. We might caught in a thought, this is not working. We might caught in a feeling, this is terrible. We might caught in a sensation, this is terrible. Like there was this lady who uh, who was told she had cancer and she thought, of course a medicine can help me, but what can help my mind in terms of that? And then she was told about mindfulness, about meditation. And what she felt was that the meditation, the mindfulness, helps us to see that she is not just cancer. She has cancer, she has to take care of it, but she is more than that. So often when we grasp, we reduce ourselves to what we grasp at. That it be a sensation, that it be a thought, that it be an emotion. And if we kind of reduce ourselves in that way, then we amplify. And then one thing we can notice is when we say, it's always like this, it will never change. And here, in a way, you have grasping. Instead of, in a way, the practice of the meditation is to lessen the grasping so that you have what I would call creative engagement. So first, you see yourself as this flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. So you see yourself as a complex organism meeting a complex environment so that you don't reduce yourself so much anymore. You can say, yes, I have this problem. I have this difficulty. This was hurtful. But I am not just that. I have some capacity, I have some good friend, I have some ability. And then one move from not amplifying to, okay, what is going on? And how can I creatively engage with it? And so sometimes we don't, actually we just have to be patient and wait for it to to pass in a way, because sometimes we can't change it. All the time we can change it. We can change it by doing something different, we can change it by asking for help, we can change it by stopping to meet somebody or etc. etc. So in a way it's kind of to see when is it that I grasp and then I reduce myself and I also reduce choices because generally when we grasp there is very little choices. So can there be more Calmness and clarity so that then you can have more creative engagement. What can I do with the inner condition? What can I do with the outer condition?
0: So by holding, I guess, aims or desires a little bit more loosely or mitigating them, you're able to expand the way that you're thinking to entertain more possibilities rather than getting kind of tunnel vision, narrow, tense.
1: Exactly. So, in you know, again... You, you said the word desire. At one level, desire is just kind of what is good for me, what is fruitful, what is helpful. Uh, what do I want to direct myself towards? So at that level it's just being an organism living in the world. But then you can have desire, I want this. And you could get it, or you might not. Again, you know, I could, uh, I am 70 years old and I could say, I want to be a ballerina. Well, this is a little out of the question. But I want to write another book. I want to develop more compassion. That's a possibility. So, again, it's kind of in a way uh, what is possible and what is the creativity in the possibility? So that again, there is kind of more choices, but also not just on our own, that we connected with others. I think this is very important.
0: Yeah. I like that, that discernment of there's, there's, it sounds like there's almost like two levels of desire, two levels of grasping. Like it's, it's not about having no grasping, no desire because like we're human, we're here, you know, to do something. Otherwise you would, you would have no way to orient what decisions to make and how to live. You just kind of like lay there and do nothing. So you have to have some level of desires, but we're, it's, we're trying to limit that like that second level desire that's like kind of built on top of it. And that's where it becomes unhelpful.
1: Yeah, and also to to see, I think nowadays one of the difficulty too, in terms of desire is uh, what they call FOMO, what they call <laughs> kind of <laughs> comparing mind. You know, nowadays, with social media, you have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and so on and so forth. And so here, it's kind of like, I think all these are kind of a desire-making machines in a, li- right. a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. And so, um, personally, I think social media can be really, really helpful for people to connect and things like that. But being careful of... The creation of desire, I would nearly say for no reason. You know, I mean, and then if you look in terms of ecology, then again, how do we use resources? But also a term desire in terms of comparison. Because you see a photo or you see the achievement of somebody, but you have no idea how they feel. Again, when you desire something somebody else has, you see only a small part of the person and you don't know all the circumstances. They might have this one good thing. The rest could be actually very different. So again, being careful, nearly what do we desire and how do we desire it?
0: With meditation, often what I've thought of over time has been it's, a mental practice, emotional practice, spiritual practice, but you also write about how it can apply to physical habits. And you talk about different body awareness practices and things of that nature. How can those kinds of focused meditations influence the way that we can be more aware of our bodies and then treat our bodies differently and kind of navigate in more healthy ways to do things that feel better for us?
1: Yes, because you see, we are a lot uh, in our mind. I mean, it's a powerful. I mean, as a human being, organism, we have a really powerful brain. It's a, I mean, it's fantastic that we have a brain in a body. I mean, this is wonderful. Lots of great opportunity. However, at one level, the way different things happen, education and so on and so forth, what becomes really paramount is intelligence, is thinking. So we really train to use this great ability we have to think and to reflect and intelligence. And so we have a tendency, not everybody to the same degree, because people are different, but to be abstract. So to go into abstraction. And so often you have this feeling, it's mind over body. And so, and then you have the surprise if for whatever reason your body doesn't work or you have a kind of illness or you hurt yourself or whatever, is like, hey, wait a minute. It's kind of like the body saying, wait a minute, I exist. But if the body doesn't say anything unpleasant, originally Not everybody to the same degree, but we can not ignore it because it works. And so mindfulness of the body is kind of saying, can I take care of the body? Not just when it hurts, because it's a little late generally. And so what I kind of, I think about it as signal of the body. Can we take care of our body? Can we be kind of present? to the signal of the body. Because in a way we only exist because we have a body. We don't just kind of like open up the feeling we are a brain and the body is following behind. And it's kind of more to be integrated. And so in a way to just kind of, because the way we feel is through the body. Of course, the the brain, the thought have an important part. But a lot of it is really about how do we feel in the body. So you have actually different aspects to the mindfulness of the body. You have the just in terms of that's where we feel, that's where we are in contact with, so very much tonality comes in through the body. Then again, uh we can the body can be tense. This is so interesting when we meditate, I find sometimes. I sit in meditation and then I tense. And I tense because I feel, I have the impression that if I tense, I will meditate better. This is an old habit from the temple I, I have. So then I suddenly notice I kind of tense my uh, jaw to meditate better, which is a bit of a strange thing to do. And then I relax. So in a way, just to be aware, when do we tense? Kind of, how do we tense? And kind of, again, kind of shows us a little bit our connection with effort, because often effort is tense. And I think meditation could maybe show us that effort doesn't have to be tense. So that's one of the things about the tension, how we hold ourselves to be more aware of that. Then also, how do we use a body in terms of, you know, when we work and how maybe sometimes we don't eat or we don't sleep well, or uh, me, when I garden, I have to be very careful with my back. Otherwise, you know, I love gardening, but then my back is not so happy with it. So it's kind of like being careful how we suddenly speed make us forget the body. It's very interesting how we become involved in something, there is a certain speed, something which happens, and then we forget the body. And again, oh, how does it feel? How am I using my body? But also I think the body can be very interesting in terms of if we have pain. Often we don't have pain everywhere. Like we might have pain in the back, so sometimes, we have such a strong reaction to unpleasant sensation that we have the impression the whole body is in pain. Once I had the impression, even the air around me was painful. But then when I questioned, what is this? I realized, no, most of my body was not in pain. I just had pain in my my back, in my hip, and that was it. And then I could go to the osteopath or I could take some painkiller. So in a way, again, kind of being aware, if there is pain, where is it? What am I feeling? How about how I'm tensing? So it's kind of like, in a way, not being kind of totally self-obsessed with the body, that's not that, but kind of just being aware of it in all its possibility possibility of stability in the feet, the seat, the hand, possibility of kind of like working with sensation, but also working with emotional sensation.
0: I was interested in your view of ethics. Often it seems like ethics are thought of as rules and guidelines or a system of prescriptions to adhere to. Uh, it, it seems like, like your view is a little bit more flexible and loose. Could could you explain what ethics mean to you and what your perspective is?
1: Well, you see, from that text I translated, the Bodhisattva Presen, there was this very interesting part where uh, it kind of really says the ethics is actually like a jewel, which is really going to shine lights. So not so much seeing the precept as rule and regulation, but in those, it's a very interesting text. And I mean, the first, I mean, you have different, we won't go into that. But the way the first 10 is done, is like, for example, uh, do, do not harm. Fair enough. But then it says, do not do it directly. Do not call somebody to do it. Do not do it in a roundabout way. And so here it's kind of looking at, and then at the end it says, Why no harm? Because it's not compassionate and wise activity. So, in a way, here the ethics comes from wisdom and compassion. In you know, a way, it comes from non-harming. And so you don't do it because of rule and regulation but because in a way you don't want to arm yourself, you don't want to arm others. But also what I found interesting to me, what I became interested also in terms of tonality, is why do we cause harm? Why do we steal? Why do we lie? Why do you take intoxicant? I am as interested by this as not doing it. So in a way you have the two I would say nearly the three aspects of ethics, when it talks about restraint, and this is about not causing harm, out of compassion and wisdom. The other side of that is actually instead of the not doing something, it's doing something. Can I be generous? Can I be friendly? Can I be respectful? Can I be honest? And then there is the third aspect for me, which is, when is it I am kind? When is it I am not? When is it I am harmless? What is it going to, what is it that is going to help me to be harmless? What is it that's going to make me harmful? And then this goes back to the tonality. And then if we're more aware of the tonality, it seems to me, ethics will make more sense. But in terms of ethics being built on compassion and wisdom, but still knowing we can't be 100% wise and compassionate in all circumstances. And then there is another text where one of the great teachers say, you need to know when to open and close the precinct. And then you have the famous case of if you have a hunter asking you, where did the deer go? And then you say the opposite direction. So basically you're lying, but you're lying for the sake of wisdom and compassion. So in a way, it's not kind of fixed. It's kind of trying to be up to whatever you can, considering the circumstances, kind of harmless but knowing you cannot be totally harmless all the time to the same degree
0: yeah so having some flexibility to kind of play within the the context that you're in because at like at, at some point like the harm with the hunter is a good example uh with lying it's like there there, there are going to be times when like you kind of have to pick one over the other and d- different principles are going to be in at tension with one another so it's just kind of about leaving that that room to play within the lines and see what feels best.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Again, complexity, complexity. Yeah.
0: Could, could you, uh, well, I, I guess you, you kind of touched on it. You, uh, I saw a video of you talking about the three way of intention, action and effect, and then the importance of wisdom and compassion within those. So is that, does that kind of sit? Like with the, with the, what, what you just talked about, does that kind of sit at the root of like the, those three principles sit at the root of deciding what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. And then wisdom, well, compassion being having the right intention and doing the right things. And then wisdom being knowing how to actually do it effectively, because you you can have the right intention, but, but carry it out in the wrong way and get a terrible effect. So it, it's, you're, you're like combining wisdom and compassion. And then those three principles, that kind of underlie this philosophy of ethics?
1: Yes, yes, because you see, I think often people say it's, the intention is the most important, but what here the text is saying, no, 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 the three, each of them is important. You know, what is the intention? Of course, what is the action? Of course, but what is the result of the action? Because sometimes you can have the best of intention and actually the result might not be very helpful. So in a way, I think here is having some humility to see, okay, I might have a good intention, but did I have the proper action and did it have the proper result? And so of course, often in terms of ethics, you never know what's going to happen. But I think what is important, we can learn from our mistakes. And also I think we can learn from studies and kind would of say, you know, if you do this, it's not a good idea and thing of that nature. So because here, I think ethics for me is really about relationship. So in meditation, it's more kind of you are with your interiority. But I think part of the practice is also in terms of relationship. How am I with others? How? What is my impact on others? What is my impact on the world? And so this you can, because other people are similar to you, but different also. So it's kind of learning, you know, how can this person listen to me? You know, I might have a good idea, but if they don't listen to me, what's the point? So I need to know how will they listen to me? Or is it the right time to talk to them about this? Or do I need to wait? Or do I need to choose another time? Or do I need to have somebody with me to tell them about this, for example? So I think it's kind of really, to me, ethics is really an exploration. And again and again, learning what is helpful. With my mother, who is 97, I do a lot of lying. (laughs) Because she's all over the place. (laughs) So, I mean, you know... Uh, It's kind of, you know, sometimes she's 20 years backward. And so you have to say, not today, but tomorrow. Yes, you'll do this. When you know she's not going to do it, but that's what's needed at the time. You know? And uh, So in a way, it's kind of, you have to adapt to what is going on, to what is going on.
0: So what have you been... Focusing on lately, as of your work, do you have anything new that new that you've been focusing on? Are you are you still just uh, you know doing meditations, uh, teaching your website, retreats, things like that? What, where has your focus mostly been? What have you been up to?
1: So so my my focus. I mean, COVID really changed a lot of things uh, right. in many different ways. So I'm not teaching as many retreats as before. So there been a big change in that way. So nowadays, I take care of my mother still, 97. Uh, then I also take care of my garden when my back is good. And then in terms of the Dharma, in terms of the practice, I'm very interested. Uh, recently, I did some scientific study uh, working with seniors uh, to see if meditation would help with aging. And then what I'm really interested in still working with is uh, basically a feeling tone, kind of really kind of looking at feeling tone and how it works and really looking in detail. So and I've, I'm trying to write about it, but again, I don't have so much time. But if people are interested, or if you're interested, the best is to go on Seed, because there I have kind of like instruction on mindfulness of feeling tone, talks and guided meditation. Another thing I've also been very interested in is the quality of mudita, of appreciative joy, altruistic joy, again, connected with the tonality, so that we're more aware of it. Because we're so aware of the unpleasant so fast. I think that practice really helps us to be more present uh, to what is pleasant in our lives. So I'm also interested in that. Again, in Dharma Seed, I did the same instruction guided meditation and talk and also of course I'm also a little interested in what I call nowadays the emptiness of ethics but again uh, I think I might have some talk I'm not sure on Dharma seed on that so that's the way kind of that's what I do at the moment
0: did, did you mention that that website was called Dharma seed
1: yeah Dharma seed it's a kind of a very good web, website which has the talks of many different teachers. And whenever I give a, a retreat at Gaia House, then the talks will go on to Dharma Seeds. So you have the, my, the talks on what is this. There is also a book we did. I'm not sure you're aware of it. It's called What Is This uh, Ancient Question for Modern Minds? And that's kind of like. Uh, from a retreat at Gaia House, myself and my husband Stephen, and that's available uh, through the internet.
0: Great. So, along with Dharma Seed, for people who want to learn more about your work, meditation, Korean Buddhism, where would you direct them?
1: Oh, if they go onto my, I think if they go onto my website, I think that would be the possibly the best. And then if they have specific question, then they would have to write to me via my, via the website. Cool.
0: So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you and I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for your wonderful question. And please keep well. And everybody please keep well.